we have three divisions. We have at length talked about one of the divisions, the one about concentration. And in the Noble Eightfold Path, they are called right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right effort concerns purification of heart and mind. We have also talked about right view, which means seeing the unsatisfactoriness of worldly conditions, which means seeing the impermanence of everything that pertains to us, not being fooled by the apparent solidity of this body and by the ever-recurring thoughts and the ever-recurring breath, but seeing the impermanence of each moment and eventually gaining insight into the reality that we aren't what we think we are. Right view is a starting point for practice when we recognize the unsatisfactoriness of worldly conditions and also understand that we are the manufacturers of our own happiness and unhappiness. That's when we can start practicing. Until we have seen those two things, we might dabble in it. Very popular, dabbling. But we won't practice. One could probably say dabbling is better than nothing, I'm not that convinced, but it's possible. These are the first two aspects of right view. And with that comes the next step, namely right intention, which I mentioned last night. All the things we're doing here are connected to right intention. The main feature of right intention is the understanding that we are the owners of our karma and that we take the full responsibility and also right intention starts out with recognizing again that our main work in this human lifetime lies within us to cultivate and develop spiritual growth. Physical growth we get anyway. Mental growth we work on because we get the promise that that will bring us benefits like in our livelihood. But spiritual growth, very few people actually take that into consideration. That's right intention when we know that that's our purpose in being here, in being a human being. 
So right view and right intention are the wisdom aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. And since they are always mentioned first, you can see from that that we need some wisdom in order to get started. We need the wisdom of seeing Dukkha in worldly conditions. We need the wisdom of knowing that we ourselves can manufacture happiness and unhappiness through purification. And we need the wisdom of our right intentions. Intentions of spiritual growth. Obviously, wisdom also arises at the end of the Noble Eightfold Path, when right view becomes established in the experience and realization that there's no individual present. But we need a starting point, and those are the starting points. And on the way, we gain more and more insight, so that eventually the Noble Eightfold Path comes full circle. The third aspect, which we haven't touched upon yet, is moral conduct. And that's what we need in our everyday life. If that doesn't happen, <coughs> spiritual growth cannot possibly happen. I would be totally opposed to each other. Freedom is not license. I think that's often misunderstood. Quite often in so-called spiritual circles. Freedom is insight, wisdom and letting go of all that that we're hanging on to. That's freedom. By no means does it mean we should be able to do whatever we please. I saw a car sticker and it says if it feels good it must be right all one can say is God forbid <laughs> the moral aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path is expressed in three steps right speech, right action, right livelihood right speech and right action concern the five precepts one of those is speech and four of them are action and livelihood is added to it I'll mention that one first so that we can have an easy understanding of it right livelihood means that we don't break 
any of the five precepts in order to make a living. In the Buddha's time, he mentioned a whole list of things which were wrong livelihood. Most of those are never heard about in this day and age. So it's actually quite simple to know what right livelihood is. If you don't break any of the five precepts, you've got right livelihood. That too is important because we spend a lot of our time with making a living. A lot of time and energy. So if that has any connotation of wrongness about it, we are putting the mind into the wrong channels and be much more difficult to get it out of those channels again. The channels are grooves that they get deeper and deeper through habit. Very difficult to pull oneself out if the grooves are so deep that one is sort of stuck in them. That's why one needs to watch thought and emotion diligently every moment and substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome as quickly as possible so that the channel does not become a deep-rooted groove. The first of the five precepts. We undertake the training not to kill any living beings. The words of the Buddha are realistic. We are undertaking a training. He knows and knew very well that we have to train ourselves, that we are not perfect right from the start, and that we will find it difficult. Difficult to follow the precepts. So it's called a training. Not to kill any living beings. Very often the question arises that one kills in the garden. One also kills when one takes antibiotics. But the other side of the coin is if one didn't take antibiotics, one might kill this being. So which one do we want to keep alive? As long as we have this gross body, there will be some destruction around us because this gross body needs gross food and support. So killing is the intentional harm out of hate. So not to kill means not to hate. But we are also enjoined to practice the opposite, namely loving-kindness and compassion. Now I <coughs> explained those in quite a bit of detail when I talked about the purification of the emotions. 
what we kill and not kill is entirely up to each person. Obviously, there's some killing going on when we walk, which is unintentional due to lack of mindfulness, but also due to the fact that this body uses up space, which is also used by much smaller creatures. From that, we might be able to understand that on the level of this worldly existence perfection cannot be found we can make all endeavors and have all intentions it's only our spiritual growth that can eventuate in the perfect liberation even while still in the body and yet that body will still have contact and sometimes unintentional harm to other very small living beings it's up to each person how to deal with that the Buddha's guidelines that are to train oneself to remove hate from one's emotions not survival but hate the second precept is we undertake the training not to take what's not given which means not to steal but it means more it means also that we are easily as careful about somebody else's belongings as we are about our own and that we are fastidious and not take the smallest thing that isn't particularly ours or is given to us it's to counteract greed so every time we look at these precepts we know what they're supposed to do for us and we know whether there is hate or greed within we're also enjoined to practice the opposite which is generosity the opposite of greed the opposite of taking it's giving generosity comes in many guises we can give money material goods time skills love attention care we can give ourselves to an ideal the more we give ourselves away the easier we will be able to see through the delusion that creates all the misery in human nature generosity the giving of 
materiality is the first step. The first step of thinking of another and not about oneself. But also right view and right intention because it makes good karma. It makes good karma by creating happiness, happiness within us. We should never <coughs> look for gratitude. If we get it, that's nice. But you know who it's nice for. It's nice for the one who's grateful. It's making good karma by the one who's grateful. Looking for gratitude is result thinking, achievement syndrome. The more we drop that, the easier life becomes. Essentially, we all are already what we would like to become. We just don't know it. We've covered up the knowing. We've covered it up with thinking. We've covered it up with delusion. But we are. There's nothing actually to become. So when we can think of another, happiness is created within us. And that happiness becomes part of universal consciousness. When we only think about ourselves, our mind becomes contracted. Obviously, this self-person is small. One little person. And has very distinct boundaries. Where the skin ends, that's supposedly where the self ends. So that's a great contraction. But when our mind and heart go out to others, we are enlarging our capacity of feeling. We are extending our horizon. So generosity, which is also equated with helpfulness, is an important factor on the spiritual growth path. We would have talked about it often. It's one of the ten virtues and stands in the very first spot of the ten because it opens the door for us out of our self-centeredness into the connectedness with other beings. The connectedness and the togetherness is something that we do learn about very much in meditation as an experience. But even when it hasn't become an experience yet, we can logically understand it that we're in all this together and if we have some joy or happiness that creates joy and happiness 
around us in a universal context. If we are angry or self-centered, we are creating that around us. We are often speaking nowadays about the pollution of the environment. And then we have all sorts of different rubbish cans to sort out our glass and our plastic and our tins and our paper and all the rest of it. And then we think we're not polluting the environment. Is that really true? We are polluting our environment with every negative thought, with every self-centered thought, with every negative emotion. That's how we pollute our environment. But by the same token, we can clean it up. Generosity is a great cleanser. A cleanser for our heart and mind and also a cleanser for our environment. The togetherness, the helpfulness creates harmony amongst people. And with that harmony we feel embedded in that which we call our environment and we would never dare to harm it because it's our home. The people around us are our environment just as much as nature. The third precept is I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. <coughs> In the 70s, sexual misconduct was a mystery. I think we've finally come to understand what it means. It means hurting another person, physically, emotionally, either way. The opposite of it is to take responsibility to be reliable, to have kind of feeling of responsibility for another person, not only for one's sexual partners, also for friends and relations. These are the people that are our closest karmic connections in this life. And to negate that connection always creates an inner feeling of unrest or also grief. It's not a good thing to negate that connection. It came about through karmic resultants and we have responsibilities. 
to be true to one's word, to keep one's promise, to be on hand when needed. Those are all parts and parcel of being responsible. If we feel that we ourselves can be relied upon, we get a feeling of security. Having to rely upon others is always a feeling of uncertainty connected with it. But when we know we ourselves are totally reliable under all circumstances, then we feel at ease on that point. And reliability is probably the major item as the practice opposing the misconduct to be reliable. Another person can rely on us. It creates happiness. If we can rely upon ourselves, it creates a feeling of security. Again, that precept is also to counteract greed. One could say hate is involved too. The fourth precept, I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh words, gossip, backbiting, and idle chatter. The last one is one of the most popular hobbies that we can find. It doesn't cost anything. It's practically always available. Even if there isn't another person to chat to, we all know what the mind does, don't we? It just loves it. And we have also organized our lives so that idle chatter is always possible. All we have to do is press a few buttons and uh, somebody answers the ring. <laughs> and if that doesn't happen, we can press another button and somebody is talking at us or to us from the television. And or the radio. So we are all organized for idle chatter. Why does the Buddha say to undertake the training to refrain from it? It's an unnecessary expenditure of energy. It's an unnecessary expenditure of mind energy, but also physical energy. And also it produces distraction in the mind. And if we really want to meditate, we will have to watch that we keep our mind in a 
meditative stance outside of meditation doesn't mean we have to meditate all day long it just means that we don't allow it to do whatever it pleases the more it does what it pleases during the day the more it will do what it pleases during meditation and it becomes harder and harder to make it one-pointed so idle chatter causes distraction in the mind but it also causes input into the mind of subjects which are not conducive to purification the Buddha had a number of topics that are not worthwhile talking about one of them is politics <laughs> he called it kings and ministers and armies and war it's not conducive to purification it's only conducive to negative thinking another thing that he said wasn't worth talking about sex for men to talk about women for women to talk about men not conducive to purification another thing that he said wasn't worth talking about is food only conducive to greed the other topics but these are the main ones so what do we talk about <laughs> if those are not good topics more choices left huh? we talk about such things which are conducive to spiritual growth it doesn't have to be the most profound philosophy in fact that usually doesn't help at all it can be about hindrances and their removal it can be about lovingness and its cultivation it can be about disciplining oneself and how to do it it can be about meditation there are plenty of topics actually now all of us probably have the um, situation where we are together with people who've never heard of idle chatter they do it but they haven't heard of it <laughs> so it's just happening and there's something that we need to do at that time our mindfulness has to tell us that the talk which is going on is not helpful or conducive to happiness and purification so we will try and change the subject if we are incapable of doing that and it's a skill which not which one has to learn then it's much better to leave 
while that talk is going on. Not saying I'm walking out because you're talking rubbish, but saying, asking to be excused. It's as simple as that. If one has used a lot of time in being within the Dhamma, one finds that idle chatter is dreadfully tiring. It is so tiring that the mind very often just cuts out, doesn't hear it anymore. One should start being attentive to the food that we get into the mind, the food we get into the body. Most people are very concerned with health food. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's much better than drinking Coca-Cola, I assure you. Health food for the body is one thing. But what about health food for the mind? It's the most important thing you can do in your daily life. And what is the kind of food we get for the mind? The media. They're always feeding us something. Watch it so that it's health food. If there's the slightest doubt that it's not health food, don't take it in. You wouldn't eat it if you knew it was dirty, poisoned, polluted. And that's only the body. Why take it into the mind? We don't have to do that. Nobody compels us a sort of a mass syndrome but a meditator becomes by necessity an individual thinker media is one thing the books we read is another the thoughts we think and the conversations we have be careful with all that input, just as careful as with the food you put into the body. Preferably even more so. I spoke about the five hindrances and their antidotes. Their antidotes in meditation and their antidotes in daily living. There is well, there are two common antidotes for all of five, the five hindrances, and they are called noble friends and noble conversations. <clears throat> noble conversations are those that have an uplifting effect, that one feels uplifted, inspired and not dragged down. If oneself can initiate such conversations, it's much easier to have them. To be inspired and to be uplifted is 
a reason for having a conversation. It tells us something new, something that we can actually make use of in our lives to improve the quality of our inner life. Those are worthwhile conversations. I'll come back to the noble friends in a moment. Obviously, we shouldn't lie. I mean, we learned that when we were small children. And we shouldn't gossip. And we shouldn't do backbiting. It's all very clear. And this is, by the way, the precept which gets most easily broken. So when we have the intention of keeping the precepts and we know we've broken one, all we need to do is make a new determination to keep it again. The admittance to oneself that one has broken it is sufficient to know oneself. There's also an interesting formula that the Buddha gave us for right speech. If we want to tell somebody something which could be hurtful and is untrue, not to say it. If we want to tell somebody something which could be helpful and untrue, not to say it. If we want to tell somebody something that could be hurtful and is true, not to say it. And if we want to tell someone something which could be helpful and is true, to find the right time, which removes impulsive replies. The right time is when the other person wants to listen and also when there is only loving-kindness and compassion in one's heart. If we say something just to be able to tell the other person off, even though we think it's going to be really helpful for their practice, it doesn't work. They're not, first of all, they're not hearing us, and secondly, we might lose a friend. The last of the precepts is, I undertake the training to refrain from alcohol and drugs. They confuse the mind more than what it is already. The opposite of that is mindfulness. Mindfulness is our best companion. If you take mindfulness with you from your pillow into your daily life, you will have the best, most helpful and the most understanding companion you can ever get. Your own mindfulness. Because mindfulness practiced in daily living does not just concern being attentive to what one is doing, thinking and feeling, it does that. 
but it also eventually brings about a much deeper understanding of who we really are because mindfulness will again and again make it possible for us to experience impermanence and that does tell us something about ourselves in daily life mindfulness smooths the way makes everything more easily accessible we're more efficient we are far less bogged down by our duties and responsibilities and it's also a help against burnout mindfulness does not look for results mindfulness just knows when we look for results that's when burnout happens as long as we just are there doing our very best with complete attention then we also have that inner certainty that we are giving ourselves in the best way to that which we think is worth giving to mindfulness is in the first place of the seven factors of enlightenment mindfulness is the one way the Buddha said for the purification of beings for um, the removing of dukkha for the final elimination of all pain, grief and lamentation for entering the noble path for experiencing Nibbana he never said that about anything else mindfulness is the mental stance of knowing only without judgment and without expectation when we have no judgments we don't get negative when we have no expectations we don't have any result thinking we just do and as we do we're in the present moment and when we're in the present moment we're able to experience life when we're not in the present moment we are thinking life life cannot be thought up it's got to be lived and the only way we can live it is each moment if you've been labeling when you were not concentrated you might have found that the labeling was future or past or planning or hoping well that's thinking life not living life don't waste this precious human life by thinking it up be aware of each moment and then you're experiencing it to be aware of each moment means mindfulness nothing else be right there now and since it removes the achievement syndrome the result thinking the future the past it removes unforgiveness resentment 
of the past and it removes the expectations of the future. You can't find a better companion. It's the antidote for Dukkha. We're always thinking Sukha must be the antidote for Dukkha. But Sukha is just as short-lived as Dukkha. Mindfulness is something that we are strictly responsible for ourselves. It's a mental formation we can bring up over and over again. Unless we do, we're missing the best part of being alive. Keeping those five precepts is a daily endeavor and belongs to the practice on the spiritual path. If one doesn't keep them, meditation becomes more and more difficult. Meditation cannot be an isolated activity. It has to be embedded in a whole of a spiritual teaching and all spiritual teachings which are worth following contain moral conduct these are very succinct very short and yet we will find not that easy they belong people often think that practice means meditation and that's it nothing else that's a totally wrong view we are we have 24 hours in a day of which we might sleep seven which leaves us with 17 hours each day of which we might meditate if we're really diligent too that leaves us with 15 hours 15 hours of not practicing if only meditation is practice how can 2 hours of meditation counteract 15 hours of negative thinking negative emotions and lack of mindfulness it's just not possible we can't do it our minds don't have that ability so we've got 15 hours in which we can be mindful living in each moment that's not license that's freedom that's not being able to do whatever I please it's knowing what I'm doing and thinking and feeling and substituting the unwholesome with the wholesome And when we practice like that, when we practice mindfulness, when we practice the five precepts, and then, in addition, meditate and have noble conversations, then we can say we have a spiritual practice. But if we leave any of that out, all the rest will suffer. So we have to have the moral conduct we have to have the mindfulness we have to have the purification aspect through 
substitution and then in addition have the meditation for meditation I would like to suggest that unless we do it every day the mind does not get the right input and it will not work which I'm sure everybody knows we eat every day three times well let's meditate every day three times or bargain it down to two times but that's the least we always recommend have a little corner in your house which has your pillow your mat and your pillow and don't remove the pillow we don't remove the chairs from our dining room we don't remove the pots from the kitchen we don't remove the towels from the bathroom so leave the pillow in that meditation corner or if you have a big house in your meditation room make the corner attractive that you like to go there have some flowers there maybe a Buddha statue or a beautiful picture or whatever you think makes it beautiful some people like bare walls think those are beautiful that's fine whatever you think is beautiful go there every day <coughs> at the same time our minds are very habitual and I'm sure you could notice that in the first four days of the course and then how the habit slowly changed during the latter three days if you haven't noticed it let me assure you I have the habitual way of thinking and the habitual way of acting is also easier for us so go there every day at the same time if you go there every morning at six o'clock and you've done that for a while and you sit yourself down on the pillow the mind says oh yeah that's right meditation and it is somewhat already open to it again in the evening get yourself a timer which rings at the appropriate time that you have set it for if one doesn't have such a little device our minds are really magicians we sit there and meditate and meditate and meditate and then the mind says Ooh, that must be at least an hour <laughs> and then we get up and we go to the kitchen and it's ten minutes <laughs> and then what do we do make coffee <laughs> but if you have a timer that rings for you it's like the little bell that we've been ringing here and you wait for it you don't anticipate it you don't expect it you know you're going to sit there till it rings every single moment of concentration is a moment of purification even if it's only one moment if you are a complete beginner 
and have never meditated before this course, but I don't think there's anybody here like that. You can start out with 30 minutes and then add five minutes, let's say every two weeks, until you've got a full hour. Certainly much more advantageous than the other way around. If you do it the other way around, you wind up with nothing. So, start with 30 minutes. Anything under 30 minutes is really not enough. The mind needs time to settle. Our sense contacts are all digested in the mind and explained in the mind. So there is a lot of activity, even if we don't want it. Many people therefore find that the best time for them to meditate is early morning, after they've gotten up. If one feels sleepy, one can drink coffee, have a cold shower or anything like that, do a few exercises. Many people find that the best time for concentration. Always start with loving kindness for yourself and end the meditation with loving kindness for those people you're going to meet during the day. It's going to make the day easier. The mind is already geared towards a good feeling towards those people. And then in the evening, if it's difficult to concentrate in the evening, do the sweeping. You can say it sweeps out the accumulation of emotional reactions you've had during the day. Very helpful. And as you become practiced at it, you can do it in 30 minutes. Easily. And then you can still go to the breath or do loving-kindness meditation. Maybe you have to do loving-kindness meditation in the evening, again, towards those people whom you met during the day. <laughs> it would be extremely helpful. <laughs> it's not that those people are so much helped by it. We ourselves are helped by it. So you can make yourself a little program like that. It's entirely up to you. Don't forget the five delivery collections. And then, noble friends, the common antidote for all our hindrances. When Ananda said to the Buddha once, Sir, a noble friend is half of the holy life, the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda, a good friend is the whole of the holy life. A noble friend is one who will support our meditation practice, who will be at our disposal when we need him or her, who is one who will keep our secrets and will also tell his secrets to us, will be helpful even when it's difficult to be helpful will try to show us the good way to live 
will be reliable and trustworthy, someone we can really rely on. And in order to have such noble friends, or a noble friend like that, we also must learn to become a noble friend like that. Birds of a feather flock together. A noble friend is also, in this tradition, the meditation teacher. And the meditation teacher, of course, is not always available. But it is very important to have the opportunity to join a group at least once a week and to meditate with that group where there are noble friends that one can talk to and where there might even be someone who can have the capacity, is in the capacity of a noble friend who will help us with our meditation practice. That's why there are two sheets lying there to join groups if you live in those areas. If you don't live in those areas and you don't know any group in your area, start one. Get one person to join you to our group and then some more will come. If you live in a different area, neither Santa Cruz nor East Bay, and have no group uh, where you live. Noble friends are the backbone of practice. Now that doesn't mean that you now, when you get home, call up your old friends and say, look, you're not noble enough, I'm not coming anymore. That's not the way it works, huh? What it actually needs is that you become their noble friend. But no missionary work. That doesn't work either. What really works is by example. If your friends feel that through the practice you have changed, for the better, of course, they will become interested. And they might ask you, even when you come home now, they might ask you, well, what went on at that retreat? What you do? And uh, if you think that the person who's asking is truly interested, do tell whatever it is that you want to tell. But if it's nothing but just a conversational chatter and you can tell by the tone of voice and by the look in the face that they're actually thinking what a waste of time why can't this person do something sensible sitting there watching their breath (laughs) (laughs) then it's not worthwhile trying to explain (laughs) then change the subject talk about the redwoods it's not useful to get into an argument about one's teacher one's meditation practice one's length of meditation 
one's interest in spirituality, one's reading matter, none of that is worthwhile to argue about. It only brings negativity. If you realize the interest is not really there, it's only a sentence. Talk about something entirely different. But if there is interest, share your tapes, share your books, share your experience, and if they want to know and they have never done it before, share whatever you have learned as meditation and contemplation methods. then you are these people's noble friend. And yet we need the noble friend also who has gone ahead on the path maybe a few steps further than we have. It's inspiring to know that this practice really works. It brings a certainty, a certainty that one wants to do it. It's an example to emulate. I have also put another piece of paper on the table. And I must say, I think you must be having extremely good karma. Because there were two or three questions about recommending a teacher in this area and I said I'm sorry I don't know anybody I can only recommend my students well what happened was that the next day I was informed that a monk an American has come from Thailand and has set up a forest monastery near Escondido and he comes from a temple in Thailand where the most renowned jhana meditator used to teach Tanachan Lee Damadaro was the most renowned jhana teacher in Thailand he's long dead but this bhikkhu comes from there so I rang him up yesterday we have been corresponding for many years we've never seen each other but we've been writing letters to each other for years on all sorts of subjects mostly because he was translating Achan Lee Damadaro's books from Thai into English and so we had that as our topic I rang him up and I asked him can people come to your monastery and practice have self-retreats there he said yes I said, can women come? He said, yes. <laughs> and he said, we, we have a small operation. Uh, we don't have many kutis, many huts, but we, they, they're welcome. And he said, write to me, and I will give the instruction how to find the place, and uh, they should give the dates. And I said, and will you teach them the jhanas? And he said, if they're ready for that, and I said, well, I have many students that are ready. I said, will you teach them? I wanted to make sure. And I've heard that before when they're ready. 
And uh, he said, yes, I will teach them. It was unequivocal. I mean, it was just a straight-out jazz. So uh, Lee's going to check it out. He's going to go down there and talk to the Biko and discuss it with him. But if you're interested in a self-retreat, it's a 60-acre avocado grove. So it should be quite beautiful. And uh, no problem with the language. He's an American. You can write to the address that's lying on the table there. Write to the Biko himself, Tanisro Biko, and to the address that's lying there. And ask him when you could come, or tell him when you can come, and ask him if it's all right, and uh, ask him how to find the place. Because the address is a post office box, so you have to ask how to find the place. I think you in California here must have made excellent karma. Actually, Damadaro died many years ago. There's been a disciple of his, also a Thai monk, who carried on the tradition of the jhanas in that temple, and that was the main teacher of Tanisri Bhikkhu. That um, disciple is also dead now. But actually, Damadaro, the story goes, I never met him, I only know his books. But there obviously, I mean, there's no doubt about it that he was teaching the jhanas. Um, they're explicit, they're detailed, they're right, and there's absolutely no doubt about this his books. But the story goes about him, and you can check that out with the Biku, with the American Biku, whether it's true, um, that when he died, his body did not deteriorate. For at least six months, it stayed exactly the same, which is one of the results of mastery of the jhanas. It's not important for the person who's dead anyway. <laughs> but it's certainly very important and was very important for the disciples because they could pay homage to him even after his death. And uh, you can check that out and see if it's true. I really don't know. I was just told that. That he was teaching them, there's no doubt. It's in, the, in his books. And those books will be also available there. I'm sure that he brought them with him um, because he translated them and there were lots and lots of them printed. One other thing that I might mention, I told you about the English course at Buddha House next year. We're also offering one week of self-retreat following that course in Buddha House for particularly for those who've come a long way so that they don't have to leave immediately after the 10-day course is over. But we're also offering January, February, March of next year for self-retreat in Buddha House. And of course, for that you don't have to speak German. Usually I speak, uh, speak German in Germany and teach in German. But when you do a self-retreat, you, um, you get English tapes to listen to, and you can have interviews with me in English. <laughs> so 
And it not, doesn't mean that you have to stay for three months. It means a maximum of three months and a minimum of two weeks. So if you're interested in that, you could let me know so that you, that you can get the address where to write to for that. We will, um, you see, we send out our programs where that is mentioned, but that's all in German, and then you won't really understand what it says. So it's better if you let me know if you're at all interested in that self-retreat, and then I'll give you the address. We'll do our last loving-kindness meditation together and the sharing of merits. Put your attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and find the jewel which is the seed of enlightenment within your own heart, shining, clear, translucent, beautiful, sparkling in all directions. pure and filling you with confidence, purity, beauty, and the love for the spiritual path. Look into your neighbor's heart and see that same jewel, the seed of enlightenment, sparkling and clear, translucent, totally untainted. And love that person as a bearer of this wonderful jewel. Now think of your parents and see that same jewel within their hearts, lighting up their hearts, being the foundation of their inner life. Give them your love. as the bearers of this beauty. 
Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you, those you might live with, and find that same sparkling jewel of the seed of enlightenment within their hearts. Translucent, pure, and with its beauty warming their hearts, give them your love as a carrier of the most wonderful jewel there is in the universe. Think of all your friends, particularly those that you might meet soon, and find that same jewel, the seed of enlightenment, in their hearts, the foundation for all goodness, for all purity, sparkling, creating light and warmth and love them as the carriers of this beauty. Think of those people who are part of your daily life, your neighbors at home, people at work, on the street, in the shops, the offices, whoever you can think of, whom you meet very soon, and see in each of their hearts a sparkling jewel, a seed of enlightenment. giving out the most wonderful light and warmth, creating beauty and love. Embrace them. Feel connected and one with them, having the same jewel in their hearts as you have in yours. Think of your difficult person and see that same jewel in that person's heart. It's in every heart. It's just as translucent, just as sparkling, just as full 
of light and warmth creating a foundation for the spiritual growth love that person as a carrier of that great beauty Now look around you at people everywhere, wherever you can think of them, and only look at the jewel in their hearts, totally untainted, pure, beautiful, warm and sparkling. And then embrace each person with your heart as being a companion on your path, even though they might not practice now. Go as far afield as you can and look at people far removed from here, all having the same jewel within their hearts. And look at those you know and those you might reject and all have the same jewel in their hearts. Embrace them all. We're all in this together. Now put your attention back on yourself and enjoy and love this beautiful jewel, the seed of enlightenment, in your heart. See it as the most valuable thing that is within you. Cherish it, love it, and love yourself, being the carrier of this beauty.
we share the merits of this meditation course with all our teachers, our parents, our loved ones, our friends, and our enemies. We share the merits with all the devas that are present. We share the merits with the cook who has helped us to stay alive. We share the merits with Tony who organized it single-handedly. We share the merits with the people here, the land of the Medicine Buddha, who are keeping this place going so that we can come. We share the merits with all the supporters of this place. We share the merits with each other and with anyone who may have benefited from that. May all beings be happy. May you be very happy. I now officially end this meditation course and a noble silence is lifted. <laughs>